0: Good hours time for a few good programs to serve their communities. Radio is better than ever in targeting an audience that listens to what you say. Learn more about this exciting radio broadcasting opportunity by calling WNZK Radio at 248-557-3500. This is WNZK, Dearborn Heights, Detroit. Your ethnic superstation at 690 days, 680 nights.
1: U.S. Arab Radio Network presents Season 3 of the Ray Hanania Radio Show, sponsored by Arab News, the leading English-language newspaper in the Middle East. Each Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern, veteran journalist Ray Hanania explores issues facing Arab Americans on WNZK AM 690 Radio in Detroit and on WDMV AM 700 Radio in Washington, D.C. And now, your host, Ray Hanania. Watch the show live on Arab News' Facebook
2: page. And welcome to the Ray Hanania Radio Show, May 24, 2023. Season 3, Episode 4. Our topics, Growing Popularity of Arabic Language in America, and a second uh, discussion segment, involvement of Arab Americans in the 2024 Democratic Presidential Convention. Our first guests are senior Pew Research Center demographer Jeffrey pessel and researcher Mohammed Muslimani. They co- co-authored a new study detailing five facts about Arabic speakers in the United States. And then afterwards, we will talk with Jim Zogby, the founder and president of the Arab American Institute at Washington, D.C., based organization that serves as a political and policy research arm of the Arab American community. Uh, he led the effort to get Arab Americans a voice in past democratic presidential conventions and is planning efforts again for this uh, for the 2024 summer uh, convention uh, that's going to take place in Chicago. Um, this and Hanania show is broadcast every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern in Detroit and uh, we invite you to enjoy our first interview that we're going to put up here right in one second. We'll get this going. And here it is. Welcome back to the radio show. I want to welcome my guest now, uh, Jeffrey Passell and Mohammed Musulmani. They're going to speak about a new Pew Research Center study on the number of Americans who speak Arabic in the United States, which has increased dramatically since 1990. Two thirds of Arabic speakers, according to the report in America, are immigrants. And the report also has many conclusions that we're going to explore, but it talks about the growth in the number of Arabic speakers has easily outpaced growth among speakers of several other languages from the Middle East, such as Persian, Farsi, Hebrew, and Turkish. Um, Jeffrey Passell is a senior demographer at Pew Research Center and is a nationally no- known expert on immigration to the U.S., Mohamed Moslemani is a research assistant focusing on race and ethnicity at Pew Research Center, who co-authored the report with Passell. Welcome to both of you, and thank you for joining the radio show. Well, thank you for inviting us.
0: Bye well, first
2: of be- all, tell us about the analysis that Pew Research Center did, which is based on census data, as I understand it, on Americans who speak Arabic. What What did you find
0: generally? Well, first, as as you said, we found a dramatic increase over the last uh, 30 to 40 years in the number of uh, Arabic speakers. And this is people who speak Arabic at home. Uh, There may be other people who speak Arabic, but this is a question specifically asking about people who speak it at home. And the number has increased uh, from about 200,000, a little over 200,000 in 1980, Uh, up to almost 1.5 million by uh, 2021, Uh, a very dramatic increase. A lot of it's been driven by uh, immigration from uh, Arabic-speaking countries, mostly in the Middle East. Uh, And as you noted, uh, a majority of those who speak Arabic at home are immigrants. Uh, about two thirds of those are immigrants. And if you just look at adults, about three quarters are immigrants. Uh, They come from a lot of different countries. Uh, There's no one country that provides the largest number, but uh, both Iraq and Egypt account for 13% of all the Arabic speakers, uh, Lebanon at 7%, and then smaller shares from other countries while there are Arabic speakers around the country the largest concentration uh, in terms of share of the population is in the Detroit metro area uh, where uh, the Detroit metro area accounts for 13 percent of all the Arabic speakers in the country and almost five percent of the people in the metropolitan area speak Arabic at home and and that by far is the largest share uh, of any of the metropolitan areas in the
2: country. Now, obviously, this is going to sound like the same question, but it's the nuance <laughs> is a little different. What What's the conclusions about what all this means? Not, not what you find, but what does it actually mean that more people are speaking Arabic? And uh, it, Jeff, if you want to talk, and then maybe if Mohammed has some perspective on it, too.
0: There's a couple of things to consider. One is uh, we're continuing to get we, we've gotten a, a lot of immigration, and the immigration has slowed for a variety of reasons, but, but we're still continuing to get immigrants. Uh, and uh, this, is, this is a, a notable population. Uh, they, uh, but it's also worth noting that uh, a majority of the people who speak Arabic at home also are proficient in English, about two-thirds are proficient in English. So we're getting these immigrants and uh, a growing number of people speaking Arabic, but they speak uh, English as well.
2: And Mohammed, I don't know if uh, you have a perspective on that. um, how How do you look at what is the significance of this polling? What does it say about the Arab and Muslim community?
3: So I, I don't know that I have much to add about the Arab and Muslim community. The, um, the, interesting about, the interesting thing about this piece is that it doesn't ask necessarily whether individuals are Arab or identify as Arab, it just asks if they speak Arabic at home. But I, I would point to the finding that Jeff shared that I think is notable to some degree, that since 1980, greater and greater shares of Arabic speakers in the US are now proficient in English. I I think that's notable because it might indicate to some degree what's changing about the demographics of Arabic speakers in the U.S. Do we know what factors are driving this
2: surge in uh, Arabic speaking in the U.S., or is it just the immigration? It just reflects a growing Arabic immigration to this country.
0: I think the, the major factor uh for arabic and for a lot of other languages is the immigrants themselves coming in addition to the immigrants uh the children of the u.s born children of those immigrants uh often grow up speaking arabic and uh, in many instances uh, there's a desire to retain the language of the parents so uh, a lot of the u.s born Speaking, uh, who speak Arabic, are are probably children themselves of immigrants or people who married uh, into married immigrants, U.S. born people who married immigrants. We can't get at a lot of those factors with this. All it asks is, do you speak a language other than English at home? But it's clear that the immigration is a major factor in in driving the growth.
2: I know that the report that uh, you and uh, Mohammed did. Uh, suggests that two-thirds of the people who speak Arabic are actually uh, immigrants, uh, but that remaining one-third, are they the children of immigrants or are they Americans who, for example, that are not Arabic or don't speak Arabic um, who happen to want to learn it? Is there, In other words, is there an interest among non-Arabs and non-Muslims to speak well, Arabic?
0: Well, again, we can't really tell very much from this. You know, Most of the adults uh, we, we don't know whether the U.S.-born adults are children of immigrants because they don't ask that question. This, this is, in some ways, a fairly narrow question. It doesn't ask if you speak Arabic or if you can read Arabic. It asks if you speak it at home. There are clearly people who speak and read Arabic but may not speak it at home. And and so this is this is a kind of narrow question on uh, about languages spoken at
2: home. We know that a lot of this data comes from the U.S. Census. And yet for Arabs, I mean, for years, you know, I remember trying to get included in the census as an Arab. now there's a push to include us as MENA, Middle East and North Africa. Uh, But none of the legislation I've seen actually says Arab. Um, How do you rely on the U.S. Census, which some people would say is flawed? I'm not sure there's a lot of other data out there other than the data that's provided by the census. How do we assess all this, given what some people would say is a flawed system in the census?
0: It's difficult. First of all, one of the advantages of this survey, it's called the American Community Survey, is, is it's got a huge sample. Uh, The sample we analyzed for this report had 3.3 million people in the sample. Uh, You just can't get that scale of data. And what that enables you to do is get at groups that are relatively small. While the number of people who speak Arabic at home is one and a half million, That's only about half a percent of the U.S. population. So if you have a smaller survey, it's going to be very difficult to identify those people. But one of the things that we at the Pew Research Center have tried to do, and the Census Bureau has tried to do as well, is to test these questions and see who it is we're identifying and Uh, investigating the best ways to collect information on people's identity. And um, yes, uh, the Census Bureau is considering adding a question on MENA, uh, Middle East, North Africa, adding a category into the race question. And so with that question, people who uh, want to identify as Arab will be able to they'll be able to either check a box or write it in and there's a separate category uh, for it Uh, right now you're exactly right we have to rely on other types of data and other questions to get at uh, these various dimensions of identity language is part of it you're exactly right Uh, some communities uh don't trust the Census Bureau. They work very hard to get people to respond. And uh, there's not always the right question there to identify people. Uh, The language one is a fairly straightforward question, but you're right, it only gets at one dimension of identity. It picks up people who, who speak this language, speak Arabic or some other language at home, and it's not and that's only one dimension of identity
2: as well as you mentioned there are five points and I think you touched on them uh the fifth point I thought was interesting though it said that uh about two thirds of Arabic speakers or 66 percent are proficient in English which is up from 54 percent in 1980. how does that do we know how that compares with other uh immigrant groups I mean in terms of their proficiency is that low proficiency in English, is that
0: 66% low or high? It's among the higher proficiencies. Uh, the people who speak other languages, the proficiency is increased, but not as much as it increased among Arabic speakers. And uh, the English proficiency is a bit lower for uh, speakers of other languages. That varies some by language, of course, but. As a group, uh, the Arabic speakers are slightly more proficient in English than than other languages.
3: I was going to say thank you for sharing that figure. That figure is actually for all Arabic speakers, but when you look just at immigrants, their proficiency has gone up from 47% in 1980 to 57% in 2021. If you compare that to immigrants who speak another non-English language at home, it went up from 39% to 44% in 2021. So actually, as Jeff was saying, among immigrants who speak a non-English language at home, um, Arabic-speaking immigrants have higher levels of English proficiency than immigrants who speak other non-English languages. There is a question on ancestry or maybe Birthplace, But um, unfortunately, the, the ancestry variable people put in a lot of responses to it. So sometimes, with regard to the ancestry question, um, people may not respond necessarily with nationality or ethnicity, they might respond with a sort of pan-ethnic label. So some people might say Lebanese, and some people might say Arab or Middle Eastern, and so sometimes with this data as jeff was saying it's a little bit hard to get at
2: the other uh questions i have one is the impact of the fear factor that exists in the united states you know the way arabs and people who speak arabic whether they're arab or non-arab they're often portrayed in such negative ways um it to me it's kind of interesting that the number of people speaking arabic have increased because we've seen so many reports about uh, travelers who are on airplanes who may speak Arabic and you hear these stories about how other passengers get upset and concerned they they instead of taking off they ask the passengers to leave the planes I'm not saying this happens every day but it's on the minds of some people does that fear factor at all play in any way um in terms of, uh this uh rise in the number of people speaking Arabic in other words if it wasn't there do you think it would be more uh Americans that would be speaking uh uh Arabic
0: well that's an interesting question um I think um there there there's a kind of data perspective that I can offer on that Uh, and one is that you talked about uh the quality of the data and how it's collected uh, the Census Bureau works very hard to assure people that the answers they give are going to be kept confidential. Uh, so I think in some ways the fact that we're seeing these numbers going up the way they are is is in part attributable to the Census Bureau's efforts there. Uh, but on the other hand, I think there may well be people who, Declined to answer, or or didn't want to say they spoke Arabic because responses were going to the government. So, it is it is probably the case that there are more people who speak Arabic than what we've seen, uh, for a variety of reasons. One is people choosing not to answer it, and the other is uh, maybe the Census Bureau didn't reach all of the people they did, but they they do. It's commendable that. They're able to get these data, but uh, there's a likelihood that there, there's uh, more.
2: Can the context that you think of speaking Arabic be put into a, a larger context of Americans who speak other languages? In other words, is it have there been other studies, you know, of other second languages that we can compare this to? Is this is this a high number um, compared to people who speak uh, um, German or Italian? Uh, for example uh, or uh Spanish is there a way to compare that or is it just the acceleration of the number of people who are speaking that really
0: reflects what's important about this poll that more people are speaking it I believe this is the uh seventh most common non-English uh language spoken at home uh some of the others have a lot more speakers, Spanish of course being one of them. Uh, but uh, it's a reflection of, of recent immigration uh, and uh, you know and I think the, the the other factors you previously mentioned is that the, the ties to uh, uh, Islam and the Quran, uh, Totally make it an important language for for people to speak and you know you mentioned German you mentioned Italian those numbers are going down uh, uh partly because we're not getting as many immigrants from those countries uh, and and the people have been here longer uh, but uh, you know this is a, a very rapidly growing and growing uh much faster than a number of other languages from the Middle East
2: all right um any final thoughts from either uh of of you Jeffrey Passel or uh Muhammad Muslimani
0: well this is this is uh part of a piece we have a new center that's focused on racial and ethnic identity uh and we're we're uh doing work in a variety of areas and uh, this is one piece of it and uh, we're hoping to get more uh, data to to address some of this as the census bureau works with their uh, questions and their uh, framework so that we can uh, address other dimensions than just simply language it's a focus on racial and ethnic identity and so we we have expanded the work that the pew research center has done mainly looking at uh, public opinion people's attitudes uh, on a variety of issues their identity uh, their attitudes towards politics their attitudes towards work and the whole range of issues but we're We've expanded our focus on the African-American community. We've had a long focus on the Latino community. Uh, we're focusing on the Asian-American community, and we hope to expand that work further uh, as we move forward.
2: All right, I want to thank both of my guests. Uh, Jeffrey Passell, senior demographer at Pew Research Center, nationally known expert on immigration to the U.S. and the demography of racial and ethnic groups. And Mohammed Muslamani, a research assistant who also focuses on race and ethnicity at the Pew Research Center together. They co-authored this report on the language and the increase and the growth of uh, the Arabic language um, in uh, the United States. You can visit the Pew Research Center at pewresearch.org and you'll be able to find some documents on it, uh, especially this five facts about Arabic speakers in the U.S. that uh, Mohammed Muslimani published there. Uh, that summarizes and gives a brief of this report. Thank you guys so much for joining me today. It really was very interesting. Well, thank you for inviting us. Uh, it was a pleasure. Thank you, Ray. You're welcome. All right, and we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll uh... To our uh, uh, interview with Jim Zogby. We'll be right back right after these messages.
1: Arabnews.com, bringing you breaking news from across the Middle East and the latest on Arabs in America. Get inside the latest headlines with expert analysis and insights at arabnews.com. Join over 5 million Facebook fans and over 10 million monthly readers. Arabnews.com, news that matters to you.
3: In a perfect world, everyone would be a perfect driver.
0: Hands at nine and three, everyone. Nine and three.
3: Everyone would follow all the rules. Please, go ahead and merge. I'll make room.
1: Thank you, fellow driver.
3: And nothing unexpected would ever happen. Even the squirrels would know the right time to safely cross the road. In this perfect world, you wouldn't have to wear a seatbelt. But in case you hadn't noticed, (laughs) We don't live in a perfect world. About a 1,000 people in Michigan die each year in vehicle crashes and thousands more are injured. Wearing your seatbelt reduces your risk of death in a crash by 45% in a car and by 60% in a pickup truck. So until we find a perfect world to drive in, make our imperfect world safer by buckling up. A message from the Michigan Office of Highway Safety Planning.
2: I want to welcome my guest, Jim Zogby, the founder and president of the Arab American Institute of Washington, D.C., based organization that serves as a political and policy research arm of the Arab American community. He led the effort to get Arab Americans a voice in past Democratic presidential conventions and is planning efforts again for this summer's Democratic convention in Chicago, August 19th through the 22nd. Jim, welcome to the radio show.
4: Thank you very much, Ray.
2: It's always a pleasure to have you on there. You have such, I I remember uh, working with you going back into the 70s, which shows that there's a quality and knowledge about politics that makes you so valuable in our community. You've been involved with the Democratic National Committee for many years and have organized Arab involvement in the past Democratic Party conventions. Can you tell us about that And what role do you think Arabs might be able to play in the upcoming Democratic Convention in Chicago this summer?
4: Well, I'm going to just do a bit of a going back in history. Uh, I was Jesse Jackson's deputy campaign manager in 84. Um, I was at a a dinner. He comes up to me, taps me on the shoulder and leans over and says to me, uh, I want you to join my campaign. And I said, "But Reverend, I've I've been organizing the Arab community for the last four years. I was running ADC at the time." And he said, uh, "We'll do more for your people in the next four months than you were able to do in the last four years." Oh. Uh, we we talked about it uh, and uh, ultimately decided that I, I I would take a leave from from ADC and and do it. Um, and uh, and he was right because we'd never been involved in a presidential campaign before. Um, there, had, there had been Syrians for Carter, Lebanese for Reagan. There'd never been an Arab-American uh, effort. And, and even in 84, after the Jackson campaign, uh, when a group of Arab-Americans gave money to Mondale, he gave the money back. Um, and they were fairly, I mean, they were very well-known. They were St. Folks, most of them from this group from Chicago, they were on the St. Jude's board, um, but he was told to give the money back, and he did. Um, it was heartbreaking to them and infuriating to us. But w- what I did find in the campaign was that people turned out in record numbers um, to rallies and do all that stuff, and they were excited that he was there talking to them, talking about them, mentioning the Arab American community's name, and um, And so after we had the the ruckus at ADC and uh, we had a bit of a rupture, not a bit, but a a rupture, um, we decided we're going to, you know, what we'll do is we'll just continue what we did in in 84 and make it into a a focused uh, uh, organization, voter registration, mobilizing the vote, getting candidates to Arab Americans to run and be involved in public service and bring our issue in the political mainstream and so we did we launched the Institute in 85 we had one of our founding meetings in Chicago with our eye toward 88 and how we were going to mobilize Arab Americans before 88 well we got sidetracked because the mayor of Dearborn ran on a platform what to do about the Arab problem they're not like us. they don't share our values and our darn they're ruining our darn good way of life. So we focused on Dearborn voter registration, et cetera. and it turned out quite successful um, um, But by the time we got to eighty eight, we had a, a an idea and that was to focus not only on mobilizing the community and getting them to run for delegate and win, but also to um, bring our issues into the Democratic, State conventions. And we passed pro-Palestinian uh statehood resolutions in uh, 10 states. Uh we had a part of the Jackson platform at the national convention. Uh, and we actually had the first ever um national debate on Palestine from the podium of the convention, as I introduced the minority plank on on Palestine uh at the at the convention. Um, but more important to me was that we had 80 plus arab american delegates wow. the previous high had been four we were now at 80 and that was how successful our efforts were to, to get people to 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 run uh we had a big event at the convention um that year in atlanta um in the the rooftop of the one of the big hotels there um we had every convention since then we've done a, an arab american cultural event that has been just great people have loved it um And we've had an issue forum uh, where we've talked about issues that have also been incredibly well attended, uh, focused on, uh, almost always focused on Palestine, on issues of importance there. And so the combination of making sure that we had delegates in large enough numbers to matter, an event that highlighted our culture, um, and a policy forum that focused on our issues has been the way we've, we've done it. Since I've been the the chair of the Ethnic Council, we've also had Arab Americans participate in the broader ethnic effort, Um, and so what we're planning for this year's convention, uh, next year's convention rather, is a a Taste of Chicago um, ethnic fair where we're going to advertise here's the Polish restaurants, and the Irish restaurants, and the Arab restaurants, and the the Italian restaurants, and and create a, a sense that the ethnic communities of Chicago have a real role to play in the party because, you know, you're from Chicago, you know how polarized black and white is. Well, I remember Harold Washington telling me in 85, everybody sees it black and white. He said, I see a lot of shades of tan and brown and and tan and gray, and every group's got a name and they just want you to call it out. And so I'm not willing to just surrender to the black, white scenario. I want ethnic groups there the Swedish museum, the 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 neighborhoods of Chicago, each one of which has a unique cultural heritage. I want that, I want delegates to focus on that. And the Arab community will be a key part of that, you know? And so we'll we'll try to do an event in the heart of the Arab community to bring delegates there. The food will be great. The dance and music will be great and 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 so too will all the other ethnic groups have their events and we'll be a part of it. Um, and hopefully we'll get a bunch of delegates too.
2: I remember in 1988 was critical in the Arab American community because you inspired me to run for the legislature in 1992. I didn't win, but the following year I ran for School District 230 uh, in the southwest suburbs where uh, the Arab population was only 10% of the school district, but they were 90% of the expulsions. We didn't win uh Miriam Zayed we then slated her with your help three times we were not able to win but I wanted to just let you know during this broadcast that last April we did elect an Arab member Arab American member Mohammed Jabber to the District 230 school board um and it was a long road but it began with what you started oh, in 1988.
4: That's thank, you.
2: thank you and that's you amazing that, and you
4: got a state rep now
2: and we have a state rep, Abdul Nasser Rashid. Um, so we're
4: slowly growing. But does it pain you? And know? the mayor of Dearborn is now Arab American.
2: We interviewed Abdullah Hamoudi's. And the mayor guy. of
4: Patterson, New Jersey, is Arab American. And that was yeah, another absolutely. city where they were literally the community Proc- was pissed on, right? Pro- and Prospect and, Park,
2: uh, Mohammed Khairullah.
4: Yeah, and and what do you call it? Uh, they got um, Main Street in Patterson's now been named Palestine Way.
2: Yeah, that things work, things
4: work. But now
2: cities like Chicago are tough, though, because they're so big and and yeah. uh, numbers actually mean something. But uh, you pointed out what I think is really critical about these conventions. You got to identify and elect delegates across the country, not just obviously in Illinois. Then you got to come up with a platform in the process with these delegates. How difficult was that to get started? And do you envision that, in given our circumstances today, all the tensions and things, will it be difficult at this convention to
4: uh, replicate
2: what's been done at prior conventions?
4: No, I don't think so, because, you know, there are, uh, we've just done a poll of Arab Americans, there are tensions in the community, there's no question. But I got started in this work during the Lebanon Civil War, when, you know, you had the two the largest group of, of people of Arab descent were Lebanese, uh, and they were out for blood killing each other. There and here. They were furious. And and the Palestinians and Lebanese and Syrian, it was just a nightmare. Uh and uh and yet we were able to fuse together a community. Why? Because the children of the immigrants have a different mindset. The children of the immigrants, when they take the lead, they find common ground rather than the divisions that are of the the folks who are their feet are here but their heads are back home right as they say um what we what we what we find today is something the same thing is that the the younger kids um have a broader sense of being part of a community and look for common ground uh of issues of concern that are shared um and that's where we'll that's where we'll go no you know if if we get stuck with the the, the Syrian opposition here, or the the, the pro-Hezbollah versus the pro-this-there, or the Fatah versus the Shabia, whatever, over you know, Hamas, it'll you never go anywhere at all. But when you deal with the generation of young Syrian, Lebanese, Palestinian, Egyptian, American kids here, or the ones who aren't so much kids, but they're still they're focused on America and American politics, you get a very different mindset. So I don't think it'll be that difficult. Uh, And I think they want to get involved and they want to be a part of the process. uh, And we'll, we'll do our darndest to facilitate it. And we have not in any convention since that 88 one, we've never uh, exceeded 80, but we've always hovered around 50. And so I'm sure we'll have our component, uh, you know, reasonable number of delegates, uh, because young people are running and they care about it and they want to be involved in the process they did last time um and they'll do it again I
2: know you're a major uh voice in uh, democratic politics and with the White House with the Biden administration I wanted to ask you about when he invi- unveiled the partnership with Arab Americans he was when he was elected president he made such strong statements and he did so much he appointed 22 Arabs to his administration he hosted the Eid celebrations. He recognized the Arab American Heritage Month. Um, one little flap, obviously, with uh, with the Prospect Park uh, mayor, the it was the Secret Service that said, uh, Mayor Mohamed Karela couldn't attend the White House Eid reception that they just had. But I just want to ask you, when you look at what he uh, unveiled as his partnership, and I know it's not easy, but did Has he delivered to our expectations or are there still an uphill, uh, road uh, that we have to traverse to get to where we think we should be?
4: Uh, both, uh, still an uphill battle. But if I look at that agenda that he laid out in that incredible statement, which I was really pleased that they issued in the first place, it's a marker. It's a benchmark. You go from there. Um, If we use baseball batting averages, he's doing pretty good. Um, You know, you're over 300. You're doing great. It's huge. If we we use the free throw average and NBA, he'd be doing crappy. Um, uh, But there's enough pieces there that give me a sense that we've had an impact. Um, But it's certainly not enough. And some of the big ones that we're looking for right now are... uh, they got to get rid of the profiling guidelines. Absolutely critical. I, to be honest, when you say about expectations, I never expected um, a whole lot. I didn't wow. I, on foreign policy. I didn't, um, and and uh, uh, and I, I, you know, they have done their darndest uh, to avoid taking a firm stand on Israel Palestine. And I've never been one of those. You know, there's always that. Well, in a second term, he'll be free. Nonsense. You know. These guys will do nothing of great consequence on this. Re- this is up to us. This is up to us to continue to push and to elect more members of Congress um, that will make a difference on this on this issue. But these guys want to avoid it like a plague. Um, is
2: there a tipping point in politics where we could see a change? I mean, can you uh, describe what that is or is that? What yeah, I mean, he- look, I, I, I think the order.
4: tipping point will be uh, the year when we win more, we beat more of them than we lose, you know, and uh, we made a dent in the last couple of elections. Uh, they tried to defeat Rashida, they tried to defeat uh, Summer Lee, they tried to defeat Cori Bush, They tra- but they did win with Marie, they defeated her and they defeated Andy Levin uh, and uh, a couple of others that they, and Nina Turner and others, um, they poured tens of millions into this To make it happen, to to defeat the progressives that they defeated, Uh, I was just on a Zoom call with readers of my column, and they were saying, "Well, the poll numbers are looking. Democrats are very pro-Palestinian. They are, and that's huge, and it's really important. But the more the pressure the pro-Israel folks feel, (laughs) the more pressure they feel, the more money they pour into snuffing it out. So they, you know, I mean, imagine um, the I mean, the, the, I'd say the chutzpah, but also the the bizarre irony of um, of that dodo speaker of the the House, uh, McCarthy. He simply doesn't get how ironic it is that he kicked Palestinians out of a room and then turned the event into a pro-Israel celebration. Wow. I mean, it's bizarre. Yeah, um, it is. That's how dumb he is. But that's also how much pressure he was under from the pro-Israel crowd to do it. And and they just thought, this is fine, just fine. You know, and um, the U.S. doesn't go to the Nakba celebration, at the commemoration, rather, at the UN, because the Israelis tell them not to. The more opinion is changing in the world, the more pressure and the more money that they'll put into to snuffing it out. But I think at some point, they don't run out of money, but they run out of the ability to get that job done. And I, I do think it'll happen. I don't know what the tipping point is, but I know that, the, the, you know, we're moving in the right direction here.
2: And you mentioned uh, former Congresswoman Marie Newman, who was phenomenal. Yeah. It took a while to understand her better in terms of, you know, working with her, but she did great. Uh, she did lose the election, but part of that had to do with um, the our non-presence in the U.S. Census And which allowed the leadership on not just Democrats and and, or Republicans, but the leadership in Illinois and across the country to divide up that third district into five. It was the largest concentration, according to The New York Times, of Arab and Palestinian voters. They divided it into five sections, really dividing our vote. Um, what do we do with the census? What do we do with that? And, well, and explain yeah. something you explained to me. Putting uh, Mina on the census is not the same as putting Arabs in the uh, minority business enterprise category. Right. Sometimes they get mixed up, but they're two separate things.
4: Yeah. we. When I started with the census, back when I was at ABC, Helen, some hen, and I were dealing with the census people. Back then, naively, we wanted an Arab category on the census. Uh, an African American woman who was a fairly high official there, she came to us and she said, You really don't. I said, No, we want an Arab category. She said, You don't. Because if you get an Arab category, you'll lose about 60% of your count. Um the support, in other words. The, no, so, the count. In other words, if you if you oh, only our numbers. Count, yeah. If you only give them that option, they're not going to use it because there are people who are second, third generation uh, who still today are the largest component group of the Arab community. You know, the Arab community aren't the five guys who had coffee at the at the Ahui last night. You know, they're not the guys who hang around. You know, uh, you know yeah. the the on the corner uh, on what Kidzi or whatever. You know, whatever the street is where the, the, they're concentrated. They're not. That's not the community. The bulk of the community is still. The second, third generation crowd. They are every bit as much a part of the community. If you want an accurate count, you got to get them. You got to get Ray LaHood in the count. If you don't get them, you lose so, 60% so- of your numbers. So we we agreed with them to instead have an ethnicity question. What's your ancestry? And then that gave them some options. Well, the ancestry question is way too vague and it never really worked. So what we've agreed, what we've, what we've gotten them to do since the last census, which they ended up, Trump ended up canceling, but now doing in this census, is to change the race question into a race and ethnicity question. So it will ask for race. Those are the affirmative action categories, but then it will ask uh, a couple of ancestry questions that are different than race. So you can put black, white, Hispanic, whatever, whatever, and then you can put white, and you can put ancestry, and ancestry will give you in the ancestry category a MENA category, Middle East, North Africa. Now that will include everybody, Middle East, North Africa. It'll include Turkey, right. Iran, and Israel. Um, we've gotten them to agree that the categories that they'll use as examples will be the largest categories in each one. So the largest one would be of the of the MENA would be the Lebanese. The largest in North Africa will be Egyptian. The largest of the non-Arab ones will be Turkey. The largest of the non-country-specific ones will be Kurds. Uh, and that's how it will be framed. And then other. So you will put. You can put white, you can put mina, and then you'll write in which one of the mina groups you're in. Little complicated, but it's the best way we know to get an accurate number at the end of how many Arabs there are. And and maybe,
2: I was going to say, maybe because I've always been an activist, and really it comes through your inspiration, believe me, Jim, you've inspired uh, Arab American generations for many years, but I always am so proud of being identified as Arab, and I understand the MENA category, but in the Illinois legislation, they don't, they're saying, oh, it's going to recognize Arabs, but they don't use the word Arab in. Any of the text, any of the bill, to me that's a problem. Why? Here's why the, should I ignore said. that? Tell here's me why I census, should ignore it. Here's that.
4: what the census does: it counts then all those ethnicities, and actually they have in their screening eighty three different categories that people have used in the past.
1: right So
4: you can put down Tripoli, you can put down Beirut if they ask for your ancestry. You can even put down Phoenician. What the census does when they give it back to us, they count them all Arab. (laughs) So they actually do for us what we need to do. So we get an Arab number. So you get the option of saying, here's what I am. But the census says, these are all the people you want. Count them. If you only gave them one option, Arab, you wouldn't get them. But if you give them, you tell me what you are, what you want to be. I'll figure it out. And then we get to put them in our, the only fight we've got right now is with the 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 Black community over, what do we do with uh, with Sudan and Somalia? They want right. to count Black, we want to count them Arab. So this is why the race and ancestry two-tiered works. They get to put Black, and they get to put ancestry Sudan. So Blacks will count them as a Black, and we'll get to count them as Arab because they'll put Sudan or Somalia, and we get to count them because we count all 22 Arab League countries uh, in, that, in that mix. Plus, other variations on the theme if people end up putting down. So what I'm hearing also is
2: part of the problem is us as a community. Some people, uh, maybe some of the older generations don't want to say Arab. Yeah. And and in doing and not saying Arab, we lose the numbers then. So this is an option you're saying that gives everybody the opportunity to participate, and then allows the census to then extrapolate those numbers about Arab being counted. Those that want to do it, those that don't want to do it. And you think that's the to, best way we get to, to identify put all them
4: all into one bag and count them all for ourselves. Right. right. Exactly the way it works. Some... And you can't, you know, you can't kind of blame the people who came. Look, my father, uh, there were five brothers. One came with an Ottoman passport and was Turkish. One came with a Syrian and the other came as Lebanese. So, I mean, the still the largest club, the largest grouping uh, organization of people of Arab descent in the country is the Southern Federation of Syrian Lebanese Clubs. They all came over before right. World War I. They're the descendants. Yeah. Syrian Lebanese was how they called themselves, still do. Um, I, I'm not writing them out. I'm not willing to exclude them from my count because they don't, they're not woke, uh, and right. say so Arab. You know, they're 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 not from the post Nasser, post Baath, whatever uh, generation. Um, and so I, you know, I, I the question you have to finesse this. Now, the other part of this issue is whether or not Arab is a race, and it is not a race. It's just not a race. I mean, it's not a race either in the physical sense, with you know, red hair, freckle face Syrian kids versus. You know, obviously African looking Egyptian and Sudanese. Um wh- where's the race in that, right? And and are, are Circassians in in Jordan um and Syria, are they Arab? And if right. they are, you know, so let's not be too woke about this and 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 get right. to the point where we want to use a racial category. It's not a race here. We're talking about an ethnicity. And it's a shared culture based on a common language and a common heritage that is beyond race, that is multiracial. And so give people the option of doing race and then doing ethnicity. And then in every one of its variations, right, is an American success story. And what we don't need to do is put ourselves in the position of competing with those who've been our allies in the Black community for affirmative action because we're discriminated against Our story is fundamentally different than theirs, and I believe affirmative action needs to be fixed, but it doesn't get fixed by adding more and more groups who don't belong. The Indians don't belong in it, Bottom, the people from India don't belong there. The Chinese don't belong there. Systemic discrimination, Black, and to some extent Latino, although, look, I've got there's Zogby's in Mexico, Carlos Slim, his chief of staff is a a Zogby, right? If he comes to America, does he get affirmative action? The answer, he shouldn't, but he would. That's wrong, you know, and and we have to fix this problem, but you don't fix it by adding more people to the mix by demanding that we get part of the pie. The pie belongs to those who have been systemically discriminated against. That's not us. All right, Jim
2: Zagby, you are an Encyclopedia Britannica of Arab American history, and I'm going to tell you, I learned more from you, even though I've been so close with you and your organizations over the years. I continue to learn from talking with you, and I definitely have to get you back on to drill down into some of these topics because they're fascinating, and our community
4: needs to hear it. Jim, thank Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm sure some folks are going to be upset with the the affirmative action thing, but hey, if you don't ruffle some feathers, you don't get anywhere, right?
2: Well, I tell you what. I promise you, we'll bring you back so we could explore that a little bit more.
4: Great. Take care.
2: All right. I want to tell everybody thank you so much. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have some uh, concluding remarks. I'm Rayanne and Neil. We will be right back right after these messages.
1: Arabnews.com, bringing you breaking news from across the Middle East and the latest on Arabs in America. Get inside the latest headlines with expert analysis and insights at Arabnews.com. Join over 5 million Facebook fans and over 10 million monthly readers. Arabnews.com, news that matters to you. Were you recently at the emergency room? urgent care or at your doctor's office being told you need a hand wrist or elbow specialist at the Katranchi Hand Center. We offer the latest techniques in hand wrist and elbow care from sports injuries to work injuries to everyday hand wrist and elbow problems. The specialists at Katranchi Hand Center are here to get you back on track. Call us in Troy today at 248-869-4263 or visit us at com to schedule your appointment today. Life for Relief and Development has now been rated as one of the best charities for humanitarian aid. Life's humanitarian projects span the globe, and Life is celebrating its 30th anniversary of providing essential life saving aid to people and communities in 36 countries, regardless of race, color, religion, or cultural background. Where there is life, there is hope. And when disaster occurs here or around the world, including being one of the first responders to the Turkey Syria earthquake crisis, Life for Relief and Development rushes in to provide food medical aid and shelter to those in need we are looking to help the earthquake victims and we take zero percent overhead on emergency donations so please help improve these efforts learn more about our involvement to help the helpless and bring hope where it's needed most and make your tax-deductible donation to life for relief and development now at lifeusa.org or call 248-424-7493 that's 248-424-7493
2: And welcome back to the and Hanania show. Uh, I want to thank everybody for listening. I I thought that interview with uh, uh, Jim Zogby was phenomenal. I also want to thank our two guests from the Pew Research uh, Center, demographer Jeffrey Passell and researcher Mohammed Muslimani, for giving us an explanation as to why and how the Arabic language is growing in popularity in the United States. It's becoming very, very popular when you uh, look at the data that is uh, uh, being collected here in the United States. So uh, listen, that we're uh, here every Wednesday at 5 p.m. and I hope you join us again next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern, right here at WNZK AM 690 uh, Radio in Detroit and WDMV AM 700 in Washington, D.C., where we're gonna have another look at some of the issues and the news in the Arab American community. Um, you can get more information on me, by the way, at hanania.com. And of course, I hope you follow my columns and my writing at arabnews.com, which is the leading, the Arab News is the leading English language newspaper in the Middle East. If you want to understand what's going on in the Middle East, and I've been in journalism more than 45 years, almost 50 years, a half a century, I have to say that Arab News, and I'm there because I want to be there, is the best source for information on what's happening, not just in the Middle East and the Arab world, uh, but also what's happening in the Arab American community, which is the focus of what our show, the Ray and Radio Show, here uh, on the U.S. Arab Radio Network, sponsored by Arab News, focuses on. So again, it's uh, it's just a pleasure uh, to have to be able to do this, and uh, I want to thank everybody over at WNZK for all the work they do and support uh, that they uh, provide, including Leila Hosseini, who is an uh, just an icon in the Arab American community, and our producer. Uh, in Detroit at WNZK AM 690. Mike Chubka and Hernan Molina, our uh, producer in Washington, D.C. We're trying to build this uh, station and we are doing it. You can get more information again on me at www.hanania.com. We're going to take our final break, which I missed at the very beginning of the radio show. (laughs) That was my problem. But I want to wish everybody a great Memorial Day weekend. We'll see you next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Let's go to this final break, and we'll talk to you later. Thank you, everybody.
1: Arabnews.com, bringing you breaking news from across the Middle East and the latest on Arabs in America. Get inside the latest headlines with expert analysis and insights at Arabnews.com. Join over 5 million Facebook fans and over 10 million monthly readers. Arabnews.com, news that matters.